2: Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers and the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel, the editor of the TLS, and back this week, hooray, from her suspiciously timed illness, <laughs> is Italian northerner, cheese lover and rambler, Thea Lenaducci. Thea, are you feeling better? I am. I'm not very feeling very well, a Smiley face. Yeah, are you feeling happy? Uh, yeah. Smiley face. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be talking about emojis very much later on yes smiley face but you're feeling what well, you're feeling well now
3: i am how are you 100%. feeling?
2: i'm not feeling very well but i'm i'm pluck- i know there's just i can just sense absolutely no sympathy <laughs> out there at all. If you want to subscribe to the TLS, I've not mentioned this in a while, so I'm going to remind you Google TLS subscriptions, type POD1 in the offer code section and you can get six issues for six pounds Coming up on the show this week our lead in the paper is a fascinating and rather powerful piece on the subject of drug addiction by Eric Ionelli who's reviewed several memoirs from those who have battled it. He'll be sharing his opinions and his personal experiences with us. Would you take fashion advice from Samuel Beckett? A question perhaps that's been seldom asked but now can be answered. Laura Freeman has reviewed a book called Legendary Authors and the Clothes They Wore and will be in the studio to name and shame the best-dressed writers. In Charlottesville, the college city in Virginia has impinged on the global consciousness in recent weeks with the scarcely explicable sight of Nazis marching and armed militia strolling the streets. Krishan Kumar has written about the university's legacy of slavery and identity issues. He'll be on the phone to tell us more. Do you think writers as a group or tribe are likely to be a particularly well-dressed bunch? I have to say no. I tend to think of enfeebled artists shivering in their garrets, wearing holy cardigans, old smoking jackets and pyjamas. Well, the fashion writer and editor Terry Newman can't have thought so because she... And I thought it was a he, has published a book called Legendary Authors and the Clothes They Wore, delving deep into the drawers and wardrobes of 50 novelists, essayists, playwrights and journalists. We learn, among other things, that Beckett's coolness is a phenomenon that few can compete with, that Updike's sartorial theme was average plus whatever that means, and that Wolf mixed and matched sweaters and gardening skirts, printed tea dresses and fur shrugs, buckled shoes and shawls, an eccentric synthesis that preceded Prada's geek chic by 70 years or so. No wonder everybody was so afraid of her. So is this sort of examination of judging a book by its cover, as it were, any use? Is it good fun or bad practice? Well, Laura Freeman, who's reviewed this book, is in the studio with Thea and me to tell us more. Laura, don't judge what I'm wearing. Uh, you call this a good book, struggling to get out from layers of stoles, mink coats and turbans. Let's be positive to begin with. What's good about it and then what, what what's bad about it? What's good about it, first of all?
4: Well- I love the idea that she wants to rehabilitate the frumpy writer, the stereotype you talk about in the garret, sort of picking at their moth holes or the blue stocking looking rather dowdy and serious in her glasses. I think that's an admirable um, pursuit. The photographs are beautiful. Um, There's lots of unexpected ones. Joan Didion is gorgeous. Virginia Woolf looks, you know, rather kind of uh, rabbit in the headlights in her uh, granny chic.
2: Um, Which I believe precedes Prada's Geek Chic by <laughs> 70 years or so.
4: It does. She was a great trendsetter in all sorts of ways.
2: Me. So that's good. So you think that, um, is, there a, is there a need to do that, do you think, or is it just fun, I suppose?
4: Well, I, th- I think so. I think it's uh, wrong to be sneery about fashion and to say when anyone who's interested in fashion is somehow lightweight or unintellectual or, you know, you can't take them seriously. Uh, I think it's possible to, to be both um, very keen on your, on your skirts and frocks uh, and, and also
3: a great uh, uh, writer and mind. Arguably more so. I mean, I can't, I can't think that anyone seriously believes that serious thinkers can't also think about what they wear. I mean, if you're going to make moral and aesthetic judgments in one area of your life, or creative judgments, in inverted commas, in one area of your life, why would you shut them out in, in another? So do you,
2: do you think there's a semiotic, this talking like the sort of semiotics of fashion, do you think that, that, that your clothes send out meanings, they're, they're, they're things that can be analysed? Of course they do. Do you need Laura?
4: Oh absolutely! I, I was thinking that the example I really love is Vera Britton, who no one would doubt was not a serious or high-minded person. But when she went up to Somerville for her interview, she wore a little lace dress and white suede shoes and a blue satin cape, and she said all the dons were wearing her, her line was plain Jane and no nonsense conventions of Oxford women's dons, and actually one of her dons kind of pulled her up on what she was wearing and saying, "You look absolutely absurd tripping across the lawn in your little suede shoes." Um, Why did she done that
2: then to, to shock them?
4: No, not to shock them at all. It was just the society she had grown up in, in Buxton, that is how one dressed for dinner.
3: Um, that's that's funny because um, when I went for an interview at Cambridge, the person who was interviewing me, the professor who was interviewing me, immediately, the first thing he said was a, he co- commented on my skirt, mm-hmm. which just completely threw Did me. <laughs> yeah. That's awful. Oh, it's awful, but yeah. I can't remember his name, which is probably for the best. Yeah, <laughs> otherwise we'd be, very tempt,
2: we'd be very tempted to do it. But that's, I wonder, are women judged differently to men then? Do you think that women's clothes are, are, are considered more important in how they're regarded than, than men? Does that come across in this? Are, 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 is there greater attention paid to women's clothes than men, do you think?
4: I think she's quite good actually picking enough men's examples. I thought men might be rather sidelined, but actually it is about 50-50. Um, and she writes with equal uh, fervour about uh, Samuel Beckett, as, as you say, as she does about you know Colette.
2: Yeah, but does it do you think is is a is a bigger issue for women?
3: Well, to, I mean for, in that okay. women have we have far greater choice so yeah. we can go wrong <laughs> in more ways but we can also go right in more ways I suppose.
2: But there's always that debate isn't it that is Theresa May for example just moving a slightly away from this book but is she judged any more harshly than say David Cameron uh, as prime minister? Cuz Cameron's clothes were sort of picked over a bit and but, but not as much as Theresa May's maybe.
4: I think only when he was on the beach wearing his, his swim trunks and oh. his Bowdoin um, text shirt. Whereas Theresa May, you know, absolutely everything she wears is sort of itemised and you want to know, is it high street? And you think about the fuss over her leather trousers
3: and what a hard time she got over that. Yeah. I, I mean, would tend to agree with that, though. I don't, I mean, I do think that her leather trousers were, were an aberration.
2: What, because they cost so much or because of the way they look? I
3: don't think you can, you can push austerity and talk about austerity uh, yeah. and Cameron representing bit, the many while wearing. But Cameron
2: know, got a bit of that as well because he would have worn. He'd have won won a very expensive suit out of the. I'm (laughs) sure. Anyway, we have (laughs) gone (laughs) on topic. (laughs) Let's talk
3: about Updike.
2: Yeah, (laughs) Updike. Aaron, what was what Updike was? Normcore average plus
3: well the
4: other one is i find a little bit odd because i would say he just seems to be sort of an anti-fashion idol you know when i yeah. look at the photos it just looks like he was someone who fell out of you know whatever the local shop was wearing a pleasant shirt and pleasant slacks yeah. um and I, I don't think it was a kind of calculated i'm going to kind of channel my inner norm core stallion or I, i'm not sure what it is but i think she makes him into more of a fashion icon than perhaps he ever intended so what was he
2: so basically because i've seen pictures because i think Picked up pieces or uh, odd jobs or one of the odd jobs it must be. It's him sort of shoveling leaves in Boston. Wherever he, where He's did he sort live? Sort of a plaidy type Yeah, shirt. he wore a lot of. He looks like a
4: suburban dad. Yeah, yeah. he does.
2: And, and what does she conclude from that? What are we expected to conclude
5: from that?
4: Well, I think that he was sort of trying to be a sort of all-American icon or, or something similar. But I, I really think that there was no thought process behind his wardrobe. Looking at these pictures,
2: it's
3: funny because um, I was reading an article. Um, in vogue, which attributed the whole Normcore thing. Is
2: Normcore a thing? So,
3: yes, it, it just is. Means normcore. Normal. What does so, it mean? It means normcore. Normal. No, no, no. So, <laughs> Normcore, they attributed to William Gibson's novel Pattern Recognition from 2003.
2: Yeah. Lucy Dallas loves William Gibson.
3: The idea being that the protagonist in that uh, was anti slogan, anti trademark, anti make, um, you know, and wore unisex clothing, Fruit of the Loom t shirts, etc. Um, And then actually what happened, so that was somehow representative of character, which is something I'd like to talk about Mm. actually in in a minute. But so what the fashion industry then did was sort of take normcore and and twist it because it was supposed to be a negation of style, a negation of individuality. And actually what normcore has trickled into the fashion industry as is I'm so self, I'm so imbued with, with uh, confidence and individuality, that that can shine through even bland clothing.
2: So what is normcore? What, what would normcore clothes be? Things
3: that don't have branding on them. That's just clothes. Straight cuts. That's just normal clothes. It's just normal.
2: <laughs> I, I can't believe we're fetish... I, I can see how it's happened, because William Gibson's very changed, but we're actually fetishising an absence of something.
3: Yes. Well, unisex didn't really used to be a thing, did it? Unisex clothing. If you think companies like Uniqlo, for example, have... And COS, to a degree labels like that have have staked their claim on the market as being clothes for unisex kind of it's okay. a unisex idea okay. you're not you're not as gendered which is why they've been so successful
4: but I think one of the interesting th- that comes out of this book is, is not the authors who have rejected brands, but the ones who almost saw themselves affiliated with a particular designer, someone like Nancy Mitford, who was one of the great early adopters of Dior, because she was living in Paris when uh. the new look made its debut, and she utterly fell in love with that silhouette. And I think uh, you know, all her sisters who were still living in England, where there was still rationing, and everyone was wearing their grandmother's heritage tweed suit that had been handed down mother to daughter forever and ever. And um, Mitford just totally fell for the Dior look, and she describes how the semstresses... Would sort of make a great classic. Oh, you have such a tiny waist, which is obviously what you must say to a couture client because it's very <laughs> flattering. Um, but she was very funny. I think she. I tried to make the distinction. I think Mitford took clothes very seriously and took fashion with a kind of pinch of fun. Um, and she describes how what she loved about these huge, full New Look skirts was one could wear long woolen knickers down to the knees or even the calves to keep warm on country house weekends. So I think that's so she was practical.
3: <laughs> practical while, while wearing these, these d- delicious clothes. And did she bring? Did she bring these clothes? And her love of the new look into her work as well, and use that to sort of further plot and, and build character.
4: Very much, you know, all her novels there's kind of always a you know rich um, seam of clothing. You think about, um, oh, it's it's Linda and Fanny, and I think it's the end of the pursuit of love, and they're both pregnant, and they are in England in the winter, very very cold, and they sit in the airing cupboard with the boiler, wearing their fur coats to keep warm. And I just think that's the most wonderful image. And then in um, in I think it's the blessing and Grace de Valhubert. Um, well she's, she's Grace you know with an English surname then she marries her French husband and she sort of has this makeover when she realises she is extremely dowdy in comparison to all these French women who are vying to be her husband's mistress.
2: So the closing point, this is what again I find the up- Updike a, a weird reference because the thing, you, the book contains writing by the writers on the subject of appearances as well as uh, accounts of their appearance. But updike to me seems to be so The bit you quote is about three girls in bikinis. This is classic Updike, by the way. And it says this, one with a good tan and sweet, broad, soft-looking can with those two crescents of white just under it where the sun never seems to hit at the top of the back of her legs. Um, even leaving aside the horrible tan-can rhyme that's in that, it's Updike's not interested in clothes. Updike is always interested in, often... Um, sexual aspects of things, you know, private the parts. The gentle curve of the gentle, arm. Yeah, and I mean, he, there's a phrase James Wood used to write about uh, poignantlessly breasted women and things like that where he's basically over examining physical aspects of people. That doesn't seem to be about clothes. That's Updike... Lack have, of them. Yeah, exactly. It's <laughs> Updike looking at, at, at flesh. Mm. Is that distinction drawn in in, in in the book? He just seems like such an unlikely character to have here at I, all.
4: I, I would say he is the oddest um, person who is included here. It's a shame there are a couple of people I would have loved to see included, like Vera britton like Dodie Smith, who is wrote... Is
3: Mary McCarthy there?
4: No. So there are some writers who you think would be obvious candidates yeah. who are missing and others who seem not natural fashionistas or fashionistas.
2: Because the descriptions old fashion by writers, a great one you give the, uh, the Sitwellian piece of advice, uh, if one is a greyhound, why try to look like a Pekingese? which I think is a motto everyone should, well, should should follow. Who else is good? Who else writes well about clothing and its and its meaning?
4: Well, I'm very partial to Virginia Woolf, and she writes brilliantly both about her own clothes and about the clothes that her characters wear. And for example, there's a wonderful short story by her um, called The New Dress. And it's really, it takes place all in the head of a woman who is arriving at a party in a dress that in in the dressmaker's room looked exquisite and she thought was wonderful. And she steps into this room and she just knows she's got it in, completely wrong. And all the other guests look better. And she looks frumpy and old-fashioned, and it's just this sort of self-lacerating, miserable uh, stream of consciousness. As she's at this party, she can't wait to go home and take it off. It almost feels like you know, sort of, uh, her personality has been subsumed in this hideous dress.
2: Is there a class issue here? Then, because you know, I've been reading a bit of Wolf, and she was a grotesque snob. I mean, grotesque to, to the point of almost, you know, your, your mouth's open when you read some of the things she talks about the, the lower classes. It's interesting you mentioned the Mitfords and the Sitwell... Is there a feel that this is a pursuit that is either people who are in the upper classes or people who are mobile between classes where fashion is seen as a class indicator?
4: I think an element of that Yes, it moved mean, not a class so much just as money and purchasing power. Because yeah. actually Wolf has this phrase which I like very much when she's made a bit of money from her novels and she says, it's so wonderful being well off now. I need not fritter and fribble about clothes. So actually having money means you can stop thinking about clothes. You can just buy one nice dress and you wear it all the time. But there's almost a kind of a greater degree of anxiety when you think, I don't have the right sort of clothes. You know you know, in um, the Orwell novel when Gordon Comstock, he goes to a party and he has to colour in his shoes with a, with a, with a black marker because yeah. he, you, you can see his socks the shoes or something like that um and actually not having the right clothes holds you back in your career you can't go to the right parties you can't go to meetings you can't look
2: respectable that's interesting uh, do you think we judge writers by how they look do you think that beckett's a really good example there's very famous pictures of him in the, in the sort of the black roll neck looking like in this this amazing sort of fisherman wise old man of the sea you know with this sort of the craggy face and it's just the most beautiful image ever and does that affect... Because you see that really early on whenever you read Beckett. I think that it's almost on the cover of books. Do you reckon how writers look impacts on how we then read them?
4: I think it must do. I was thinking in, in your most recent issue of The T Lesson, you had that Frances Wilson review of the Knausgard yeah. autumn. And she makes that point. You get his huge, craggy face. and you know, I think she says he looks like an Easter Island sculptor. Yeah. <laughs> um, that book sounds terrible, by the way. <laughs> Frances really Wilson does. liked it.
2: And every quote she gave that said it was good made me go... Oh, the bit about vomit then. Oh dear.
4: But I think he, you know, we've come to say him as looking a bit like this kind of Viking. And actually, in 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 the book I've reviewed, there's this description. Can I read you about his hair? Yeah. Um, it is. Um, Klaus cards locks spiral and sit where they want in a devil-may-care fashion exactly the way a rock stars might look windswept in precisely the most riotous way um, and uh, whatever you think of the writing it does sort of conjure up a, an image of this windswept hero
2: but this is kind of romanticising writers isn't it a bit do you think it's it's trying to does it, it matter? it sounds
3: like the whole book is predicated on that I mean it's sort of like just staring at mm-hmm. an attractive People. But or, are, they, or, or, or. Are, they,
2: are they attractive? I mean, writers as a do we think writers as a group are particularly well dressed and attractive?
3: <laughs> Careful how you answer <laughs> this.
2: Yeah. Okay, I, I'll start things off. No, I don't think they are. Well, I, I, I think they're observers. <laughs> they're they're, they're, they're writers. To me, are people on the fringes observing and experiencing some of the sort of ruffle winds of fate. They don't strike me as a group that's sort of got rock star locks.
4: I think one of the problems is writers by and large work from home and therefore you're not other than your nearest <laughs> and dearest no one is seeing you and I find people say to me they discover you're a freelance writer and they say where do you work and I say I work in my spare room and they say it must be great you're going to sit in your pyjamas yeah, all day that's exactly how the... and I think people imagine that writers are sort of wandering around in a negligee writing their novel um, and of course you tell, know, me you... that, tell me that well <laughs> <that, that laughs> when, in fact, <laughs> <So> when <laughs> in fact when <laughs> in fact <laughs> that you jump out of bed no. on a three piece Chanel suit <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. sit down to your desk <laughs> but I always say to people no it just you know, the idea idea of sitting in your pjs all day is just grotty of course you get dressed but but there isn't that same sense of show or peacocking that you might get in an office if you're going to walk down the tls corridors yeah, and you I might see, want to might yeah. want to impress you, you know if you're on a <laughs> catwalk the
2: tls is disgraceful oh, it's like it's like it's like a, it's like a, it's like a, a catwalk um, just finally have you, looked, have you looked it's obviously not by the way i'm being hugely sarcastic um we we slum it a bit at the tls do you think it's fair to say in terms of clothes?
3: I wouldn't like to say. Okay. I was very chic do. in this sound booth. Yeah, exactly. uh, <laughs> you just can finally, come again.
2: <laughs> yeah. Just finally, have you looked and knew at anyone? Because this, this book's all about looking at, at, at writers, literally. Have, have, has it made you reconsider anyone? Have you, Have you gone back to the books of anyone having looked at this?
4: She singles out um, Jacqueline Susan, who wrote Valley of the Dolls, and and, uh, I know it's probably thought to be quite lightweight, but I love the images of her. She was clearly gorgeous, and she was an actress before she was a writer. But amazing photographs of her in a poochie shift in her Central Park apartment, and another photograph of her in sort of a Halston trouser suit with huge flares, walking her poodle in Central Park. And just the image she projects is so appealing that it made me want to read the books, which I wouldn't naturally have thought would be my my
3: cup of tea. The eccentricity is something that, that appeals, and that's why I'm not surprised when... When you, you do find writers who, who you know dress in an interesting or evocative way, or whatever, because eccentricity should be kind of a staple. You think of Oscar Wilde,
2: yeah. Writers are show-offs,
3: <laughs> in is other that, words. Is that right? I think so. Yeah. yeah, a little bit. I would
4: love to see your name in print. Love to have your outfit complimented. Yeah,
2: let's conclude on that way. Writers are show-offs. I enjoyed the review in a way that I probably wouldn't enjoy the book. Laura Freeman, thank you very much indeed. Addiction represents the height of paradox, the quest for fulfilment of individual desire that embraces also the destruction of the individual self. It can be hard to empathise with or understand, drug taking being a private, unknowable act which has intensely social consequences, a species of madness, in the words of Coleridge, which clearly has a rational basis. Eric J. Yanelli has reviewed a number of books that seek to describe the causes and consequences of what he terms addiction's self-perpetuating vortex. He brings the honest perspective of a lifetime spent in my own ambivalent company and more than two decades alongside others in recovery. Eric includes this observation once given by a friend. Your entire existence can be reduced to a three-part cycle. One, get fucked up. Two, fuck up. Three, damage control. Unelli notes that personal tales of drug problems are hardly rare, often told in 12-step meetings in church basements, private counselling sessions, and that most public catharsis of them all, the addiction memoir. Such books can be maddeningly self-indulgent or romantic or hard to read. At their best, though, they can describe and enact the epiphanic moment experienced by... Many addicts, the first magical encounter with a substance that allows us to inhabit ourselves fully and elude that pervasive sense of soul-deep discomfort, to feel genuinely at home among humanity and yet uniquely separate from it, impervious to its malice and somehow more attuned to its beauty. Now, I could go on quoting from Eric's piece uh, for the rest of this hour. It's a wonderful thing and I do urge you to read it, but let's better to speak to him. He joins Thea and me now. Eric, welcome to the show. Thank you. There's lots of books to consider here. We, I think we sent about seven to you, but perhaps a general observation. As someone who's been in recovery yourself, what's your overall impression about how addiction is written about or talked about in, in our culture?
6: Um, well, one of the things is that it's written about in so many different ways. And I think these books highlight that. There are certain commonalities that you can find among them. But what is most striking, I think, is the fact that addiction has so many individual strains and, and facets.
2: What is the reason? Is that because addiction is so prevalent or our interest in it is so peaked all the time?
6: Or both? Well, we love a redemption story. I guess there's an, another paradox here because when I was writing the piece myself, I was very torn about whether or not I would actually come clean, so to speak, and identify myself as an addict, because it's not something that even uh, some folks who are close to me still know about me, because it's it's something that that happened in the distant past, and it's a, a core component of my being, but it's not the core component. There's a certain stigma with addiction, and I can understand both the redemptive aspects of it and the aspects where... One feels shunned for being an addict. And so you have that, that paradox at work within a lot of these memoirs.
3: And you mention uh, Roger Ebert's essay. Uh, Roger Ebert was a recovering alcoholic, and he he writes in that about how important um, a role anonymity plays. His reason for sort of coming clean, um, to use your your expression, was that Usually people remain anonymous because there's a, there's a statistic, isn't there, that the, the more public you are, the more likely you are to relapse.
6: I'm not sure about that statistic, but I do know that anonymity is a huge component of AA. There is a danger, I think, in announcing your sobriety or announcing your past addiction or the fact that you are in recovery because it inserts a certain amount of self-consciousness In a way, because I have people who, as soon as I let them know, you know, I had had struggles with alcohol, they immediately say, oh, we have to make arrangements for this. And so when you come over, that means we still have to hide the alcohol. I think it enhances the self-consciousness. And so if you just kind of announce yourself as teetotal, that usually prompts a question like, oh, you're not drinking today or, or, oh, I guess you do it for dietary reasons. And that's that.
2: Mm. I'm really glad you did add your personal perspective on this uh, eric so i think it it, it really makes the piece it's such a wonderful read which it is let's talk a bit about the books that you you talk about jack sutherland's memoir uh, which is a, a story told to his dad who's a relatively famous english academic john sutherland the book's called stars cars and crystal meth the adventures of a personal assistant who really could have used one himself it's a very annoying title uh, it so- <laughs> it sounds like an annoying book is that right
6: Unfortunately, it is. I'm sure that if, if Jack and I went out and grabbed a coffee, we would, we would find a lot of commonalities. But as far as his addiction memoir is concerned, I found it to be very annoying. And I mentioned some of these in my piece, and I, and I did worry that I had kind of weighted the piece far too heavily in trying to analyze and dissect just what about Jack Sutherland's memoir I found so annoying. It was the self-pity. Yeah. that became oppressive after a while. And I think, again, when we talk about addiction memoirs, one of the things that we want from them is we really want them to describe that high. And I didn't feel as though Jack Sutherland ever addressed why he was pursuing that high. He talked about a lot of factors like trying to escape himself, and, and again, his struggles with with feeling comfortable with with his sexuality, but he never, really describe that high that was described so well in some of the other books, like well, Barney Hoskins. Yeah,
2: well, maybe it's worth bringing in Barney Hoskins. His, his book's called Never Enough, and it's a memoir of heroin addiction, which you do admire. Is the reason because he tries to capture that very nebulous notion of what it feels like to be high and therefore to continually want to come back to it?
6: Yes. There were flaws with Barney's memoir that... There just wasn't room enough for in the piece. And so I think at one point, he, he over two pages or over a full page, he, he simply lists songs that he enjoys. And that seems a bit indulgent, yeah. but the rest of the memoir, I enjoyed that he dwelt a lot in recovery. And the thing that I, that I came away with, and again, I would have really liked to have touched on the piece, is that all these times in addiction were relatively brief. When we think of Barney Hoskins, I think his period of using was only about three years. And the same thing with Luke Williams, I don't think he was using actively using for longer than seven. And my own experience with alcohol, like the peak of my drinking really was only maybe a two, a two year period. This all plays back into our conception of the addict and it's certainly what prevents, I think younger people from maybe feeling as though they're ready for recovery is that we feel as though a true addict has to be haggard and in the gutter. Mm-hmm. I said to myself, and I do wonder if this occurred to to other folks, and I don't know if anyone explicitly mentioned it in their memoir, but I thought I'm not there yet, and the, and the operative word being yet, and therefore I'm not ready for recovery. I'm not ready for that bottom. One of the things that appealed to me in a way, because I was able to relate, and I guess a lot of these addiction stories, especially when we think about 12-step meetings, it's a lot about relatability and finding those commonalities and finding those touchstones and saying, yes, I recognize some of myself in you, therefore this disease that hinges on delusion by focusing on those commonalities, we, they can finally pierce that shell of delusion. And so that was one of the things that appealed to me about, about Barney Hoskins' memoir, in addition to the fact that he just, his prose has a, a very poetic quality to it, in that when I said it's not without its flaws, he does get a bit bogged down in the duality of the, the self and the soul and, and the, or the ego and, and whatnot towards the end.
2: But that's inevitable, perhaps, when you're talking about this, this whole issue, isn't it? Because it, it, it's inevitably, I suppose, self-discovery is what you're going on when you're thinking
6: about these things. It is, but you'll find, and um, maybe this is symptomatic of our culture, but I think you certainly find it, was, it as being symptomatic of addicts in particular, is the prefix self-hyphen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you know, self-flagellation, self-pity, self-importance, uh, self-seeking... All of these things are kind of associated with addiction. While I do think that it, it merits some analysis, at the same time, it's very easy to get overindulgent and, and obsess too much on the self.
2: Um, I'm interested in, in the literary side of things, just briefly. Um, you cover literary response to addiction. There's a book called Hyena by Jude Angeline, and then there's a literary companion to recovery, a compilation called Out of the Wreck. I rise. Is there a kind of danger that when these things get fictionalised they either become sanitised or perhaps worse, kind of romanticised in a way, because everyone is familiar with the cliché of the kind of cool-looking heroin-chic junkie? William Burroughs. Yeah, well, indeed. Um, uh, uh, what do you think? Do you think there's a, there's a risk in that?
6: I certainly think that there's a risk in that. For a, a long time, and, and my own fiction tended to have a protagonist who smoked a cigarette simply because I loved that image of the, of the person with the cigarette and all that that entailed. And I think um, there's another, I, I guess it's an addiction memoir of sorts, is um, Richard Klein's Cigarettes Are Sublime, where he analyzes the whole romanticized image of cigarettes. And cigarettes are probably, perhaps, you might say, the mildest form of addiction when we're talking about some harder drugs. But yeah, there is a potential trap and a, a, a pitfall.
5: So who's um, who's
6: good? Who would we, folks can fall into? But yeah, I who... want to point out that Angelini's memoir, I, I regard it as, as thinly disguised autobiography. I really wonder how much is actually fictionalized. Yeah. And it's also not so much about. Well, I suppose the recovery element is what makes it an addiction memoir, and there's not much about recovery in in Angelini's memoir, but it really appealed to me because it described just the seediness of drug taking in that that extremely hedonistic period, and the emptiness. He really, really captured that in very crystalline form, and so he's never, he's certainly dissatisfied with his lot. He's certainly in the pursuit of something other than what he's doing uh whatever that happens to be so but at the same time he he also you know he talks about cleaning toilets and and work as, working as a as a bathroom attendant even while he was getting stints on the Jenny Jones show and he kind of straddles these two worlds so people tend to associate him with with fame and and celebrity or a modest amount given that he's not, he's got his radio show on Sirius but he was working as a bathroom attendant and even though he was kind of aware and slightly dissatisfied with that it wasn't or all that foreign to him. Yeah, I understand. Um, and his backstory is that he grew up on on Eight Mile, which is the neighborhood that that gave us Eminem. Many of the things that that Eminem talks about, uh, Angelini also experienced, and I think they became friends that way.
2: Well, Eric, thank you so much for for sharing. Like I said, your your personal perspective really meant a lot to me when I first read this piece. And you probably don't realize it, when when I read thousands of pieces almost every week, and from the very first paragraph of you writing this. Uh, which starts with your personal experience. I was kind of hooked, as it were, all the way through to the end. So thank you so much for doing it, and thank you for joining us now. OK, thank you. I just want to quote quickly, Thea. He um, talked about Angelini. Do you want to talk about how much he liked the piece and how he uh, liked his, his book and how sort of grim it was? So this is Angelini recounting a night of smoking sherm. you familiar with sherm?
3: Only from this piece. Cigarettes dipped <laughs> in
2: PCP. If ketamine's a digital buzz and mushrooms are wavy, the world of Sherm is that of an abused child who's been asked to draw a picture of how he's feeling. It's a fist-gripped crayon drawing of a bad man screaming. It's not good or bad, it just is. Which is kind of grim and sad and depressing.
3: Yeah. <laughs> who
2: do you, th- you think is good at writing about drugs?
3: Um, well, I was thinking about this, and apart from, I mean, Burroughs, junkie, because yeah. um, he's got that sort of that detached... Laconic yeah, I voice, like her, yeah. um, as well as the kind of the the embodied story. But does it
2: feel realistic of
3: it? Well, I mean, I don't know because I can't, I can't, you know, okay. I couldn't possibly. I mean, as far as I know, yes, it 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 felt like something that I hadn't experienced, yeah. or couldn't imagine myself experiencing. So, it, yeah, or is it? It does something, and then I suppose Jim Carroll, Basketball yeah. Diaries, yeah, and the film, like the, the, the film, film that I did, I did. I mean, I haven't seen it. Leonardo DiCaprio's best film, uh, yeah, probably, definitely. I would say, and I think, think about th- Alistair Crowley as well
2: does he write about
3: well, he wrote the diary of a drug fiend in uh, 1920- 1922. Co- he, on he did all sorts. I think he sort of tested all of the drugs available, and it's hard to think he- of who, who
2: gets it. I was thinking of Hunter as Thompson writing about it, maybe, but that's kind of journalistic, yeah, and it's interesting that this line between fiction and journalism you don't om- you'd almost only believe a story of drug taking by someone who you think has taken it, yeah. It seems that it's hard to imagine Well even imagine
3: it. and even though Crowley had you you know that he was only writing it to kind of push his his theory, so yeah. his his kind of his mystical system of Philema and and to kind of he uses he you know the characters kind of reach bottom and then they emerge and discover their true will. So he was he was constructing a whole he was using it as a means. Were you a goth at some than, point?
2: Here? Did you get? No, I wasn't. You didn't heavily get into Alistair Crowley as a, as no, a young person. No, I, no, no,
3: I didn't. I've always been scared of him. I used to smoke cigarettes in the woods. That's about it. Let's leave that. <laughs> <up there>. <laughs> 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 Let's leave it on that. that, that, that. <laughs> Let's leave that confession there.
1: For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at Sleep Number Stores or
0: sleepnumber.com. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare insurance plans.
3: Charlottesville, Virginia made the headlines last month when the city became the site of the infamous Unite the Right rally, organised by far-right groups protesting the removal of Confederate statues, namely those of Robert E. Lee and Thomas Stonewall Jackson, in Emancipation Park, a park which had itself only recently had its name changed from Lee Park by the City Council. The rally culminated in violence and the death of civil rights activist Heather Heyer, Then came the characteristically controversial and morally flawed statements of the US President. Charlottesville, virtually unknown to the world before that, became a symbol of the new harshly divided America, says Christian Kumar, a sociology professor at the University of Virginia, where the rally had started and where the unrest continues, centering now on a statue of Thomas Jefferson, the university's founder. A kind of stalemate has ensued with protesters who call the former president a racist and a rapist repeatedly covering the statue with a shroud only for the authorities to remove it. The reverse goes on back in Emancipation Park where the authorities shrouding of Lee and Jackson is repeatedly undone by those arguing on the less anodyne end of the spectrum against the erasure of history. As Christian Kumar argues in his essay, the university, which is in fact the alma mater of two of the rally's organisers, sits at an intersection between enlightenment and enslavement, thus synthesising America's fraught past and present. Christian joins us on the line to tell us more. Hello, Christian. Hello, Fia. You begin your piece by describing the neoclassical architecture of the university and its grounds, which far from by the by captures the spirit of the place if not now then certainly at its foundation in 1819 so i wonder if perhaps you could start by giving us a a brief tour of that here
7: it it truly is a wonderful site um it was designed very very personally and in great detail by by thomas jefferson the founder Um, he was a student of palladio so the whole of the layout of uh, what he called this academical village which is the old part of the university is, is 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 on neoclassical lines wonderful series of colonnades that run down two sides of a lawn with some very beautiful uh, pavilions, as you call them, where they, the faculty, they, the university professors, lived with students living in between the pavilions, and some really beautiful gardens. Each pavilion has a lovely garden behind it, enclosed by serpentine walls, Jefferson hated straight lines, uh, so there's nothing straight in any of the buildings. It's also very important the kind of structural principles. If you if you curve walls, you, you can you can make them with single bricks um, instead of doubling on the bricks. So he was always fascinated by combining sort of functional efficiency with aesthetic um, aesthetic beauty, and the whole university already breathes that. So it, it's architecturally it's beautiful. It was um, made a UNESCO heritage site in 1987. Um, the American Association of Architects, the Association of American Architects actually voted it the single most beautiful architectural ensemble in the whole of the United States uh, in 1976. So, uh, as an architectural design and vision, it, it, is, it is really quite beautiful.
3: And in terms of the enlightenment of the story, um, it's notable that the chapel was never put on the grounds, or, or it was, but much later.
7: That's right, yes. Um, and Even more to the point, the central building uh, in this uh, academical village is, is, is called the Rotunda, which is uh, a scale model of the Pantheon in Rome. And it housed the university's library because for, for Jefferson, the library was the center of the university, not, not a chapel. Not most, most American universities had chapels as I suppose most British universities did too. But uh, he wouldn't have that. He wanted the library, a kind of temple to light and learning, to be the centre. And it was only because there was pressure from the local community, um, increasingly in the 19th century, that every university should have some kind of religious institution, that they finally agreed to have a chapel.
2: So what's fascinating to me here, Christian, that we're talking here about the Enlightenment and a legacy of free thinking, and of prioritising of knowledge and, and, I suppose, individualism. And yet, mm-hmm. the legacy of Jefferson now, is, which is being fought over, is one of the extent to which he, he, he was obviously, he was a slave owner, partook um, at a time of tremendous bigotry uh, and discrimination. When was that legacy poisoned, do you think, in, in the popular imagination? Has it always been there as a, as, a, as, a, as a stain on the conscience of the university, or is it something that's, that's really come out recently?
7: I, yes, I don't think the university uh, reflected very much on this for most of its history. You know, it has been fairly soon after Jefferson's death. It kind of got taken over by the local Virginia gentry. Um, it is the kind of flagship university of the of the Commonwealth of Virginia. Um, and uh, Everybody sent their sons there, not their daughters, of course, because there were no women there until 1970. But you had to kind of go through. It was like a finishing school. You had to go through the University of Virginia if you wanted to move on to becoming governor or some other senior official in the Commonwealth. And uh, they established a fraternity system fairly early, which... um, as most fraternity systems in the States have tended to be rather rowdy places with lots of drinking. I think the Enlightenment philosophy did continue in the sense that there were lots of interesting departments and faculties. Uh, medicine was very early, chemistry. Jefferson had a great belief in modern subjects, modern languages. So the university was fairly distinctive in keeping these areas of learning alive. But I, but socially, you would have to say that it began to match culture of the South. Um, it really, uh, in a sense, couldn't escape uh, being, being taken over by a good deal of Southern culture. And it took quite a struggle. I mean, it, it, it really got transformed from the late 1960s onwards. So you could probably say for a century or so after Jefferson's death, if not more, it was very much part of the South, all kinds of racist features uh, built into it. There almost no black students, of course. Um, and then in the 60s, as elsewhere in the, the United States, um, things began to open up. And then the university actually rapid, very, very rapidly changed. I mean, between 1970 and about 1990, uh, when they first introduced women, women uh, came in in huge numbers and now they outnumber the men. Somewhat later, black students began to be admitted and now they represent something like 12 percent of the population of the of the university, which is uh, something like the national average of, of blacks in, in the United States. So it's done a lot uh, in the last 20 or 30 years uh, to catch up, but it was a laggard. It took time, and it really did remain for quite a long time a kind of bastion of the South.
2: And that's that's its reputation, has to fight. Now, I'm intrigued by the notion where you stand on a, a statue of someone like Jefferson, because it's being shrouded, as you say, by protesters. And I wonder how one judges these things. I mean, should he be judged as the president of the United States of America, the president of the university, a person who, who wrote, the, wrote the, the Declaration of Independence? Or should he be judged as a person who was a racist, he was a slave owner, and he was probably a rapist in the sense of enforcing his desires on, on captive women? What should a statue denote and, and, and what's, its, what's its role in a public space?
7: Well, I think you know I, I think one really has to distinguish here between, say, a figure like um, uh, robert Robert Lee, the Confederate general and and somebody like Thomas Jefferson. I can quite understand why nowadays, if not before, but nowadays, Lee stands as a kind of very, very powerful reminder of uh, the Civil War and what happened in the South after the Civil War where racism simply became a kind of institutionalized part of the the whole of the South. Uh, And Lee was the the commanding general of the Confederacy. Although I'm I'm very much against just pulling down statues wherever and whenever people demand it, um, I can now see the case for taking down Lee Uh, In many parts of the South, again, it will depend very much, I think, on the local context. Um, I think the decision on the part of the uh, city of Charlottesville to take down the Lee statue and the Jackson one as well now, I think is probably right. Uh, It's very, very provocative now. You know, things change over time something that was once accepted without very much comment, that was just part of the landscape of a place, suddenly gets charged with a new kind of significance as events unfold. And I think what's happened now means that the Lee statue will, for a long time now, simply be regarded as a symbol of the slave-owning South, and so it probably has to come down. I'm very much um, struck by the fact that uh, the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C., has recently decided to take down two stained glass windows which have been there which commemorate stonewall jackson the other confederate general and and robert lee and i think that's hugely symbolic that not not just a kind of local city might decide on that but that the national capital should as it were dethrone lee and jackson in this way it's sending a signal to other parts so that that I understand. But with Jefferson, it's rather, I think it's rather different with Jefferson. He, he was the founder of the university. He was uh, a man who believed deeply in free speech. I mean, his statue for religious freedom in Virginia actually became the basis of the First Amendment uh, to the Constitution of the United States. And he does stand for that. He stands for, for free thought. He stands for enlightenment principles. He for re- stands for reason. I find it rather difficult to imagine the University of Virginia without him.
2: And yet Robert Lee freed his slaves and didn't keep them, and Thomas Jefferson clung on to his. So if we're trying to make a moral judgment about a man, which is an interesting notion itself, whether we're ever in a position to morally judge people who preceded us by so long. But on the issue of slavery, one kept his slaves and one got rid of them.
7: Right. I mean, we do know that, that Jefferson was in desperate financial circumstances, uh, towards the end of his life. Um, that doesn't excuse him perhaps, but it does begin to explain. I mean, he had to sell off his library to the Library of Congress to pay his debts to the U.S. Treasury. Uh, things were pretty tough. He wasn't a very good manager of his uh, of his plantation. There is no purity in this uh, case, as yeah. in perhaps any other. I'm simply making the point that in, in the case particularly of this institution, the University of Virginia, it's really rather hard to imagine it without him. I mean, if he were to be dethroned in the sense that his statues were removed and people stopped referring to him, uh, it would wipe out a pretty important part of the entire identity uh, of this university. But we now have something we can look back to. We can take that part of the Jeffersonian legacy and make that, I think, the kind of inspiration of the university as it is now, uh, bringing in all the changes that, that, that have obviously been necessary and which have been, I think, uh, undertaken by the university over the last 20 or 30 years.
3: And so you can see that happening now. I mean, the mood on campus now is, I mean, what, what is being done to sort of reframe Jefferson in that sense?
7: Yes. I, I, I think the university administration itself, both the, the president and actually um, even, even more powerfully the, the rector, the board of visitors, who's the head of our governing body, sent around a really tough memo to all students, all faculty, all alumni saying, in a sense, this has been a wake-up call to us. We've slumbered for far too long not discussing uh, the Jeffersonian legacy. Let's do it. Let's in fact, do it in Jefferson's spirit. Let's just open up all the uh, the, the, the the secrets. Let's discuss it in a, in a free and open way. He sees that, I think, very much as part of Jefferson's legacy. I think one can do it in a Jeffersonian spirit without necessarily covering over the more discreditable parts of Jefferson's own life and times.
2: Indeed, with all of these things, you can make an argument that statues commemorate sometimes a moment in history, but they could also commemorate the context of that history. So if you're going to have a a statue that shows that there was a Confederate army and Robert E. Lee led it, you could equally have signs on that that demonstrate the, the moral problems with that. And presumably the same is true of Jefferson. Here is a statue of Jefferson, yeah. by the way, as well as being a founding father, and architect of religious freedom, was also a, a, a slave owner as well. And you, you, you can almost use these public monuments as a monument to true context.
7: Yes, I I absolutely agree with that. In fact, I would say very generally that that, that's what I think ought to be done to most of the statues Um, rather than pulling them down and erasing history in that way. I think... Uh, as you say, contextualizing is so much more, it's so much more educative and so much more enlightening. I think because of what's happened, that may not be possible for certain statues that continue to offend certain people in in such a way that you you just feel that there is no room for argument and they will just remain something that's going to be a kind of slap in the face uh, down here in the South. Confederate figures are always going to appear very, very intimidating to, to the black population, which is still a substantial part of the South. But I think that's the way to do it. I really do. Rather than pulling down Jefferson statues from all over the place, um, uh, which I think would simply, in a sense, mean that the university has no history. Yeah. And I find that very difficult to accept.
2: Well, Christian Kumar, thank you very much uh, for joining us um, uh, to, to explain all that. Thank you very much indeed.
7: Thanks very much. I've enjoyed it.
2: Thank you. And look, there's two things that I think that historians would say: no one learns history or retains a historical memory from statues. Books exist to do that. So if you remove a statue, you don't remove history at all. I think the issue of intent, because although Jefferson was a character with massive moral flaws, as is demonstrated by this university, he did some things that are worthy of commemoration. You know. You know Declaration of Independence, Presidency, this religious freedom thing, if the intent of the statue, either in terms of why it's created and how it's used, is one of recollecting something that is broadly positive, even though there are moral flaws of the person involved, that seems to me acceptable, particularly if you then contextualise it. Mm. If Robert E. Lee's statue is created, as you say, as post bellum propaganda and is a becomes a shrine for a bunch of loony Nazis who want to reenact the Confederacy, then that's something that you think should probably be removed from a public space. Yeah. And, and if the intention, I mean, it's because otherwise you can say, you know, Nelson's column. No, Remember, no, uh, exactly. It should, and should so- come down, or church. there should be no statue of Churchill, because Churchill would have been a bit of a racist in the 20s. No,
3: but obviously there is a difference, as we've said, between Jefferson and Lee and, and Stonewall uh, Jackson. You know, so you would take down the Lee and the Jackson ones in the same way as the statues of Starling came down.
2: Yeah, or or, or, or if you had to commemorate Lee, if you were if you, if it was if the thing had been put up at a time to reflect the historical existence of the Civil War, you could then amend it so it made clear.
3: Yeah, or or take it down and then put a, a plaque or something else yeah. in its place, explaining that there used to be a statue here uh, to this man who did this. Yeah. This is why it was removed. Look how far we've come.
0: Because otherwise, it,
3: otherwise you wake up and every morning it's a slap in the face, and as, I think that, as, as Christian said. And I
2: think that's the point. When you talk to to, to black people particularly, they say universities... Offer, I was at a, a panel at the Brooklyn Literary Festival. This came up very clearly. If you feel unwelcome at a university anyway, because at best 12% of the people uh, are black at this university and, and there'll be other universities with fewer people there, if you already feel like there's structural reasons why you're unwelcome and then you see a statue to someone... Who pretty much waged war in order that your people could remain enslaved?
6: Mm.
2: That is sending. I I, I think universities, in that sense, they've got to reflect on what they're there for. But you'd argue that Jefferson's Enlightenment views are part of that. Mm. Whether we're going to get a sensible answer on this in the end, I suspect we won't, because this is well past the realm of nuance and sensible discussion. This is banners and shouting.
3: Yep.
2: Um, uh, that's all we have time for this week our thanks go to Laura Freeman Christian Kumar and to Eric Yanelli. do go to the-tls.co.uk to see this week's edition of the paper which tackles historical immigration pet murder in the second world war which is shocking actually and emojis which I absolutely hate I've never used an emoji Thea where do you stand on emojis?
3: Um, I have been known to use them ironically.
2: Really? (laughs) Only in irony. Only in irony. Or to save space. Yeah, we should have a tip. I'm I'm just doing it ironically. (laughs) Uh, Please tweet this podcast at fbfm underscore podcast. Your comments, thoughts, please do review us on iTunes. Next week, the theme of the paper is French. So we'll all be wearing black roll neck jumpers, smoking gitan. I want to say gitan. (laughs) Gitan. <laughs> I
3: already am wearing it yeah. and smoking a Gitan, so I yeah. don't know. You've you, got a lot of catching up to do.
2: We'll shrug a lot as well. Until then, from Thea and from me. Au
6: revoir.